scriptures to Genesis chapter 35. We're going to be looking at the first half of that chapter today. Years ago, I was on a panel discussion here at the church, actually, on, and the subject was aging. And I was, the panel consisted of myself, a, a medical doctor, an MD, and a, a psychologist, actually a psychiatrist. And the point of the talk was, what are the effects of aging on those three aspects of a person? On the physical, on the mental, and on the spiritual. The medical doctor talked about how as we age, the body slowly weakens. That's the natural entropy of the physical. The psychologist or the psychiatrist spoke about how our brain actually shrinks in size and how our hard drive, as he put it, actually gets full. And so there's entropy there. When it came time for me to to comment, uh, I opened the scripture and I read from 2 Corinthians 4.16. There Paul writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Why? Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. My point was that from a spiritual perspective, our last years can be the most vital. Your last part of your life can be the most productive parts of your life spiritually. That outwardly, indeed, it's true, we are wasting weight, but inwardly, you're being renewed and strengthened, and you actually become even more useful to the Lord. What Robert Browning wrote can actually be spiritually true. Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. Spiritually, the last years of your life can be the sweetest and best. I think that's what we see here in Jacob's life towards the end of his life. Here we come to the last part of his life story in Scripture, and we see him in a kind of spiritual renaissance, if you will. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 35. God's word says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to, to God, and a, who, the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob put, said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify your, yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to God who answered me in my day of distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave up to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings in their ears. Jacob said to them, um, and Jacob hid them under a terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from the Lord fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. 
and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Pedanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall be from your own body. The land that, you gave to Ab- that I gave to Abram and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give you the land, your offspring, after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him. Bethel. Father God, I pray that I will become lesser and you will become more. Speak to your people. Holy Spirit, use your words to change hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the interpretive principles that any reader of the Bible should know and use is repetition. Repetition. The Bible uses words, when the Bible uses words multiple times, It is a clue. It is a window. It is a guide for us as to the emphasis of the text. What we notice in these 15 verses is that the name of God is actually said 16 times. Nine times he's he's called God, name of God. And then seven more times in, in the names of places and people. Bethel, house of God. Israel, person of God. El Shaddai, God Almighty. And what's really interesting is that in the previous chapter, there are exactly zero references to God. That we should notice. I think the Spirit has meant us to notice this. The contrast is placed here for a reason. And that is to emphasize Jacob's return to God. His renaissance spiritually, if you will. And the first inkling we get that Jacob is indeed different is how he trusts God. He trusts God's word. Jacob's been through a lot in the last 20 to 30 years after fleeing. Not to mention in the last chapter with Dinah. And I think between chapters 34 and 35, Jacob, I think, is tempted to run away. At the end of chapter 34, and you can look at it with me in in verse 30, we see there that he confesses his fear to his sons. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi after they went and they slaughtered the men at Shechem, you've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. There's his fear. Simeon and Levi have just wiped out the town of Shechem. They've plundered it. And that word has gotten around. 
Jacob's fear is that the Canaanites will take retribution. He's afraid that they will come together and exterminate his family that had just come into the promised land. And by the way, that is a very real fear that he is fearing. We see that in verses 5 and following, where, where when they did finally travel down to Bethel through the middle of the promised land, through the middle of Canaan, the people were indeed planning to attack him, but God protected If you've gotten to know Jacob over the last ten chapters, you can guess what he's thinking of doing at this point. I'm getting out of here. I'm running. Jacob was very, very good, very adept at running away, wasn't he? That's his first instinct. That's his kind of knee-jerk reaction. He ran away from Esau twice. He ran away from Laban once. Jacob is tempted to get out of Canaan, to leave the promised land. And God knows that. And it's at that precise moment that God comes to him and speaks to him in verse 1. And look at what he says, verse 1. Stay. Stay. Don't go. Go to Bethel. In fact, go even deeper into the promised land. And dwell there, he says. That word dwell is live, settle, settle down. And we see here that finally Jacob listens to God. And he stays. He trusts God at his word. Isn't that the beginning of any spiritual renaissance in any of us? That we actually begin to trust what God says? We read what God says and we say, I trust you. Not leaning on our own understanding, but following actually what God tells us to do, even though it's scary, even though it's tough. It's trusting God's word. In the Kingdom of Ice, journalist Hampton Sides wrote a really compelling account of a failed 19th century North Polar expedition. It was captained by Lieutenant George DeLong, and he took his ship, the USS Jeanette, into the northern waters. It serves as a cautionary tale, because not because of a faulty compass or because of a freak storm or an accident, but because of of a mistaken map. You see, DeLong's entire expedition rested on the picture of the then unknown North Pole. By maps laid out by Dr. A.H. Peterman. Peterman drew maps that suggested that there was a vast, warm ocean or sea on top of the world. And DeLong's entire expedition rested on the fact that these maps were true. As DeLong and his crew of the Jeanette traveled further and further north, looking for that sea that was never there, his ship became entrapped in the ice and eventually crushed. Almost all of his crew, including DeLong, died of starvation. 
turned out he was trusting a map that was mistaken. Jacob had been navigating his life for the last 20 or 30 years on a mistaken map of his own creation. Living his life by his wits, in ingenuity, his smarts, his deceitfulness, his scheming. As many times you and I do. And so when God speaks to Jacob here and tells him not only to stay, but to go deeper into the promised land, deeper into what he is fearing, he looks at his map and he goes, no way. I'm out of here. He, like you and me, Many times base our decisions on our own maps, don't we? Which map do you trust? Which map will Jacob ultimately trust? Whose word will he take, his own or God's? And that really is the beginning of Jacob's spiritual renaissance right here. It's really the beginning of any spiritual renaissance in any of our lives when we begin to trust God at his word. It seems so basic and trite, doesn't it? Pastor, can't you say something with more pizzazz? Something that will catch our imagination? Something that will motivate us? No. (laughs) No. Trust God's word. Because that's what we see Jacob doing. You begin to trust God's word when you have tried it yourself all along and you finally get to the point where you say, you know what, it really hasn't worked that well for me, looking at my own map. And here we see Jacob trusting God at his word and he travels south to Bethel And in verse 5, it's very interesting. We're given a peek behind the curtain. We're given a peek at at, at the sovereignty of God. We're given that, that helicopter view that Jacob was actually right. They were going to kill him. They were planning to wipe his family out because of what they did at Shechem. But God protected them. It says that they put fear in their hearts over this little band of people traveling south. Think about that. Here's a little band of people traveling south, following the the, the wadis and the rivers south. And the cities around them were terrified of them. God protected them. But Jacob didn't know that. Jacob didn't know that. He, He was just following God's map. He was just trusting God's word. That's the first way that we see Jacob starting to come alive in, in God. The second way we see his renaissance is in that he recognizes God's faithfulness. He, he, he sees God for what he has done in his life. Look with me at verse 3. 
Here Jacob is preparing his family to travel down to Bethel, and he he tells them to do certain things, and we'll get to that. And in verse 3 he says, Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make an altar there to God, who has answered me in my day of distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. Why do I slow down at those words? Because you and I have heard them before. You, they, they should be familiar. These last nine words should ring a bell. If you flip back with me, and I encourage you to do, to chapter 28, there we have Jacob fleeing Esau, and he's a couple nights out, and night is coming. He's on his way north to hide out with his uncle Laban, and he's alone at night, and he lays down, he takes a stone for a pillar, pillow, and he has a dream, and we call that dream Jacob's Ladder, where he sees angels ascending and descending. And God reiterates his, the Abrahamic promise of land and people and presence to him. I'm going to give you this land, great people will come out of you, and I will be with you. And he says it twice here, I will be with you wherever you go. Look at verse 20. So, Jacob has heard that, and here's Jacob's response to God's promises. I want you to listen carefully. Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat, and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. God has just appeared to him and promised him great things. And what's Jacob's response? What's his vow to God? Oh, yeah? Okay, okay. I'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, yeah. You promised me the whole land, this everything I can see. But you know what? When I when I'm fed every day, I'll I'll start trusting you. Okay, you you promise all these people that I don't see coming out of me, it's nations. You know what? If you keep me clothed, if you keep me comfortable, then I'll believe you. God just promised his protective presence. You know what Jacob says? Yeah, okay. If you do that, then I'll trust you. In other words, if you prove yourself, God, then I'll have faith. That is what an if-then faith sounds like. Sounds like, yes, you've promised me an inheritance, God. We are co-heirs with Christ. Yep. But, you see, I, I have this bill here, and I have no idea how I'm going to pay it. If you, then I. Okay, God, yet yeah, you promise never to leave me or forsake me. I've, I know I read that all the time, but I'm lonely, and, and I'm unmarried, and, and I'm not feeling it. If you, then I. Yes, Christ, 
I know you put yourself under the law. And you were tempted far more than I ever, ever, ever will be in my life. In every way. But I keep struggling with gossip or lust or covetousness. If you take that away, I will Yeah, Christ, I know, I know. You gave your life for me. I know, I know. But I don't feel right now particularly loved by you. If you, then I. You see, an if-then faith is unstable at best, at best unstable. And brothers and sisters, at worst, it's actually no faith at all. And we really see the fruit of that if-then lifestyle in Jacob, don't we? All you have to do is read chapter 29 and 30 and 31 and 32 and 33 and 34. And what do you see? You see a selfish, self-focused Jacob who is willing to destroy Leah to get to Rachel. You see a man living by his own wits, tricking Laban out of sheep and goats. You see a man who lives by his own understanding, sending wave of wave of appeasement gifts to his brother Esau. You see a man living in incredible passivity. We covered that last week in chapter 34 with Dinah's rape. We see a man constantly living in fear, fleeing, fleeing, fleeing. What we're given a peek into is what life looks at, looks like in an if-then framework. But right here, Jacob looks back over his life. He, if you will, looks back over his spiritual shoulder. And he sees God's faithfulness. He says in verse 3, you have been with me wherever I've gone. He finally realizes that God is faithful. He looks back over his spiritual shoulder and sees God's faithfulness. Have you ever done that? Have you ever paused your life long enough to ponder how faithful God has been to you? Have you ever done that? How God has been there when you really thought you were alone. How God has protected you when you thought you did it by your own strength. How God has blessed you when you thought it was your own ingenuity. How God has been faithful with you even though you were not faithful to him. Listen to that again. God was faithful to you even though you were not faithful to him. That's what Jacob begins to realize. And it leads to his spiritual renaissance. I want you to imagine just for a moment if God treated us like we treat him sometimes in this if-then framework. Imagine if, if God treated us and said, well, if you obey me completely... 
then I will save you. Or if he said, if you're a good parent, then I will accept you. Or if, if you stop swearing or gossiping or lusting or fill in your own sin that you have the proclivity to, if you stop doing that, then I'll love you. If you never doubt, then I will protect you. If you are faithful, then I will be faithful. What is mind-blowing about God is that he never treats us that way. He does not treat us that way. Put another way, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us of a wonderful truth, reminds us of a wonderful truth that Jacob is just starting to get under his belt. And that is, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. That's scripture. Now, this is not an encouragement to live a faithless, half-hearted life, as we'll see in a moment. It's actually a declaration about the amazing grace of God. It declares a different formula, a different framework to live by. And here it is, not an if God, then I, but a since God, thus I. Write that down, if you're writers. Since God has, thus I will. Because of God's great acts, I'm compelled to live. Since God has sent his son to live the perfect life, thus I don't have to. I don't have to live the perfect life. Christ did that for us. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now again, that is not that is not license to do anything you want. If that's your proclivity, I I honestly don't know where your heart is with the Lord. It's a since Jesus bled on the cross, thus I am completely forgiven. I mean, doesn't that free us from the crushing guilt of the law? Since Jesus took the punishment and died in my place, thus, I am no longer longer under the wrath and curse of God. Do you know what that means? you know what it translates into? He loves you and accepts you and is pleased with you. And if you see God's face in your mind's eye of anything other than smiling at you, you don't really grasp the gospel. Or there's some deficiencies there. Since Jesus rose from the dead, thus I will too someday. What better news is that? That this life is not all there is. And that you're, you're guaranteed to be with Jesus forever. Do you want a renaissance in your own faith? Start living a since God, thus I, type of life. Finally, the last window into Jacob's renaissance. 
is his dedication to God. His dedication to God. A couple in suburban Washington, D.C. approached their pastor and asked him if he would help them with their college daughter. Their college daughter felt a calling to be an overseas missionary. And the pastor said, that's amazing, that's great. And the parents said, oh, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. We want you to help us talk her out of it so she doesn't ruin her life. True story. Total dedication is pretty rare these days. It was pretty rare back in Jacob's time, too. What this text shows us is that he never really did get it until this moment. He kind of had God in his back pocket. Does that sound familiar? He called himself a follower, but, but you really couldn't see much difference in Jacob. He kept it like a foot in both worlds. And here, finally, Jacob withdraws his foot from the world and puts two feet down with Christ. And we see that in verses 2 through 4. We see that he gathers his extended family together before their journey to Bethel. And he calls them to complete dedication to God in three ways. First of all, to to ritually purify themselves. In other words, to prepare themselves for God, like you and I do each week before coming to Sunday worship. Second, second of all, he calls them to change their clothes, to take off the old garments, symbolically shedding, looking like the world. No more camouflage Christianity. And most significantly, to give up and bury the idols that they had been carrying around with themselves. Did you pick up on that? Since leaving Laban, if you remember that story that Rachel steals the household gods and hides them, apparently she kept them and it had proliferated as idolatry does among the family. They were still living a God and way of life. Translating that into modern parlance, they were still living a gospel and way of life. So Jacob, in his twilight years, finally gets it. He understands and says that to love God, you have to be wholly dedicated to him. You cannot have one foot in the world and another in the kingdom. You cannot live a gospel and life. That is his final renaissance spiritually. Total dedication. Application is simple. Have you gotten there yet? Have you withdrawn the foot from the world? Totally. And planted two feet with Christ. Like Jacob, you have to realize that you cannot live a dualistic life with Christ. You cannot. You have, you've had his spiritual renaissance. Jacob has had his. The question is, have you had yours with the dedication? 
Don't wait like Jacob until you're in the twilight of your years, I plead with you. Give up everything for Christ. He's worth it. Root out all the idols in your life. Bury them and don't go back and try and find them again like we do. Live holy, dedicated lives for Christ starting right now. Kind of like how W.J.W. Tucker did. In his book, Case, Chase the Lion, Mark Batterson tells of J.W. Tucker. Tucker was a missionary to the Congo in the 1960s. He writes of his life and work and death there. On November 24, 1964, Tucker's hands were tied behind his back. He was beaten and with 60 other Christians... They were thrown into the crocodile-infested Bomokande River. Our natural instinct is always to feel sorry for Tucker, to feel sorry for those people and those men whose life was seemingly cut short, right? Wasted. That thinking would have been lost on J.W. Tucker. Tucker didn't fear death because he had already died, died to himself. Going to the Congo during the Civil War wasn't an uncalculated risk. He counted the cost. Before he went, his missionary friend, Morris Potts, recalled trying to convince him not to go. And he said, if you go in, you won't come out. To which Tucker responded, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. Want to know what this table's about? It's about that. Jesus knew he was going in. And he was going to die. Let's spend a few minutes thinking about that. As we come to the table this morning, let that sink in. Go from your ears to your brain to your heart. And let's really take the Lord's Supper together, knowing what it cost him. Let's spend a few minutes.